let's say a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. I don't know how far we'll, where we'll go exactly with this conversation, but I had a really interesting time preparing, and I think I know which direction I want to take us in. Hi, Karen. Um, we're at the beginning of the book. Hi, Anne. We're at the beginning of the book of Leviticus. Page 660. And Leviticus, which in Hebrew is called Vayikra. Vayikra means, and God called. God called to Moses. But Leviticus, its Greek name, refers to the fact that this is what's also known in Jewish sources as Torah HaKohanim, in other words, the instruction book for the Levites, for the priestly caste. So Leviticus. Um, I've been thinking about the name Levi. Uh, this won't come as, this is certainly no Kiddush. This is not something I made up. It's something that like, I, should, I, I didn't realize for the last 50 years, which is that I've always thought of Levi as a name, so it's a name, the Levites. But Lilaveh, in Hebrew, lelaveh. Do you know what that word means? Go ahead. To accompany. Uh, I thought you were going to heart. No, no, it's lamed, it's, it's, this is lamed vav. Though levi and lev, that's worth pursuing. The fact that heart, which is lamed bet, and levi, which is lamed vav, have, are synonyms, right? No, 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 no. homonyms. Homonyms. Uh, but lelavot, the verb lelavot, lamed vav, hey, is to accompany. So a levaya in Yiddish or Hebrew, a levaya is a funeral because you're accompanying the casket. Uh, but that's not its only um, uh, meaning. On Saturday night, uh, at the end of Shabbos, after you make havdalah, there's, oh, from one baker to another. There's the traditional thing you do on Saturday night is called a melave malka, where you escort the queen because it's traditional uh, to have a, to party on Saturday night. Especially if you're in Israel, you'll know that's true. And uh, that, that celebration is called a melave malka, meaning you're accompanying, you're escorting the queen. So I was, one of the things I was just reflecting on is I'd never really thought about the fact that the Levites are the ones who are escorting, accompanying, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I just wanted to share that. What about Leviathan? Leviathan, ooh, that's a good one. It's spelled Lam, Leviathan, which, who is the great monster, that, uh, the great sea creature that God toys with in one of the Psalms. Um, and that is Lamed Vav Yud Tafnun. I wonder. Maybe it's God's consort. Uh huh. Leviathan, uh, because there are many. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. 
In other Near Eastern myths, there is a male and a female god and goddess. The one is the king and the other is the king's consort. And in biblical myth, uh, the king's consort gets reduced because the, there's only one god in the top and the pantheon. The, the female consort has to be reduced to another status. So I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Leviathan had to do with being the consort, not to mention Tiamat, who is the female goddess from whom the earth is created in um, ancient Babylonian myth, is called Tehom in Genesis, and God's spirit hovered over the face of the Tehom. So Tehom, which is clearly related to Tiamat in the Torah, is a uh, has no personhood, has no, it's, a, it's just the formless void. So the, the, the goddess is depersonalized and dethroned in the myths of Genesis. So that's an interesting riff. <clears throat> oh yes, that's, that I learned in college, in Old Testament classes, yeah. Um, but it, and it stuck with me. Yes? I'm struck with something that, with Levi being accompanied, Mm-hmm. Um, the sacrifices are korban, korbanim. Korbanim. Which are close, coming closer. That's right. So, and that's the word I want to focus on today, which is the word for sacrifice or offering in the Torah, which is korban. So they're both relationship with God. They are both relationship with God. Yes. Uh, the goal in the Torah, the purpose in the Torah, hi Emily, the purpose in the Torah, or the, the cosmic and historical and individual ebb and flow of the Torah, is that we become distant from God and then want to draw near to God. And korban is a noun meaning a drawing near. That's what a korban is. So when we say the English word sacrifice, which is a nice word, it means a sacred deed, sacred doing, it doesn't, it doesn't capture what the Hebrew is once again. Even when we say offering, it's not enough. Because the Hebrew word korban is a word which means that which draws near. And so there's an ebb and flow of distance and exile from the divine presence and return and reunion by coming near. Yes, Miriam? Studying proof. You've been studying the letter kuf, yes? Is that? Yes, korban begins with the letter kuf. And that means, you know, a holy. Well, kuf doesn't mean holy. Kuf pertains to the word kadosh, which means holy. Does that come in here at all? What source? You've been studying in in Abigail's book? Yes. Yeah, you're going to get beautiful, beautiful information there, but it won't won't necessarily be accurate linguistic. It'll be more associative. Okay, but I was just curious, you're talking about holy. Yes, yes, so kadosh means holy. And it starts with the same letter as korban. So so then, when you start reading Leviticus chapter 1, rather than become distracted um, by the physical imagery of how the animal is cut up and which part of the entrails... Uh, are used for this, and what happens to the fat, and what happens to the blood, and what happens to the... Which is very important 
Remember, this, the, this was not a um, butcher shop. This was a, the sacred the, 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 the sacred altar. So, once again, remember we talked about how the Mishkan is, and we have to think in terms of analogy rather than linear, that everything in, happening in the, uh, in the sanctuary is an analogy for our spiritual uh, journey. Do you think it was written with that intention for it to be? No, I think it was just understood to be that. I don't think anyone said, and by the way, the, the kidneys represent this and the liver represents this. I don't know if they, had, if they mapped it in some, in some linear way. I think, but I think they all just knew yeah. okay. that by, going, by building a sanctuary in which God's presence can dwell and then by bringing, um, uh, drawing near offerings, so we could be close to God, and then opening those animals and uh, uh, having and having their innards. Remember, that's the important part here, because not only does karov, the the root kuf resh bet, and this is what I was thinking about the last couple hours, the, and the root kush kuf resh bet is the is the word the 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 root for words that mean near, close to, innermost, within. So, karov means um, soon or near. Karov b'yamenu, let the Mashiach come, b'mehira, karov, you know. Um, so it means near. Likarev is to draw near. Korban is a noun for that that draws near. Um, Kerev uh, uh, is a word for a battle in Hebrew. Right? Just like that kind of uh, a hand-to-hand battle is a kerev, an engagement. Um, but kerev also means innermost, within your deepest inside part. So now start thinking about that word. And the Hebrew tells you that the drawing near to God is also drawing into your innermost place. And your innermost place, that your heart, your innards, the Holy of Holies, your inner sanctum, and the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies they're all analogous. That's, that's how I think it operated. Nothing else makes sense to me, and this all makes some kind of sense. So it's all a draft hypothesis, right? In a couple of years, I might go, well, that was fun, but, but for now, I'm jazzed, right? I have a question. Yes. Do you think that the, uh, taking the innards out of the animals was trying to get to the soul uh, it's all related. They weren't taking them out of the. They were taking them out of the animals for the purpose of bringing the innermost, the kervayim of the animal, karov near to God as a near offering. So they weren't taking them out. They were like bringing them all together. I, when, I, when I read this, I thought of it being they 
weren't very scientific. No, it's not science. Were they, did they believe the soul of the animal to get closer to God was to, to offer the soul of these offerings? Uh, it, as I understand it, the clayot, which are uh, the, the, and the kaved, the kaved is the liver, and the clayot are the kidneys, and the, and the sort of uh, bowels are the uh, kirbaim, um, that are all described in here, uh, from what I was just reading in various sources, are connected in the same way that the Greeks would make a sacrifice and then read the entrails, that each of those entrails was considered to have a significant uh, role in our consciousness. <laughs> yeah, it does. So the 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 um, I believe the um, innards were considered to be the seat of conscience, um, or something like that in Greek literature. Now you'll, you know, I just was reading about this, but for the ancient people, each of our organs had not just a physiological function, but a spiritual and psychological function. And we still have those remnants in our language today. When you say, I feel it in my gut, what does that mean? I knew it in my gut. That's like, that tells us, tells me, that it wasn't a random assignment of importance to your innards in ancient times. They were also tracking where they felt hunches or truth or where they felt it in their heart and then assigning great significance to that actual organ. That's what I'm thinking about. Yes? I think also that I've read, looking them up, that um, the different organs in that part of the body were seen to have to do with different sort of passions. Uh-huh. And the, the passions humors. that, the humors, that, you know, temper, anger, um, sexuality. I mean, that the part of us that rules us often we would call it the seat of emotion, or, in or a way. I, was, I would call it passion, but I'd say okay. that which often rules us for the bad is, is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Not just for the good, but mm-hmm. it's often in the service of not doing so well. It didn't uh-huh. include the heart, apparently, which was... Really? I've never seen it listing as including the, the heart. I was going to ask it was the lower it, stuff, it's huh? It's the yeah. diaphragm down. Diaphragm down, how interesting. Yeah, so it wasn't, you know, the, the, the heart, which is different. Which was heart mind. Wow. So I wow. think it was very much a lot of it was including what what we would call the passions, the lower passions. Excellent. Excellent. And, and in Hindu, Hindu they Abby, we're on page six sixty. Hi. Uh, yeah. In Hinduism they have a lot about the, the organs. Absolutely. I'm saying that it would seem to be, given that we also relate to our body as a place of knowing and a place of experience experience different part, places in our body, uh, that that would have been something that all cultures might have done, but might have assigned it many more um, associative layers of reality than we in our particular time do. Yeah, I, I'm saying it for the passion, calling it the passions particularly, because it's part of what's offered separately for the sin offering. You know, so oh, so perhaps... up that which has driven us in the wrong direction. Right. So we offer it up as the sin offering. Of cool. It, yeah. Fascinating. That's what I think. And also it's part of what's offered in the thankfulness offering, which is the other side of it. 
Uh-huh. You know, it's what drives good. us to have children and do things in the world and, you know, blah, blah. Very good, very good. So what I want to do... Um, just one thing. Oh, absolutely. I, um, I went to a ceremony in Crete when I was nine where it was taking the intros but also breaking open the bones and reading the bone marrow. So it was like... Wow, going to deeper and deeper. Possible. I wanted to ask too, could you remind me... Well, I just want to say that, you know, King David says, kol atzmotai, all my bones call out to you, God. Mm-hmm. You know. Anyway, what did you want to say? I just wanted to ask you, could you remind me which um, astrological correlation there is with, with Levites? No, I don't remember that sort of stuff. Anybody? Does anyone remember? And which sign the tribe of Levi is associated with? Because each tribe is associated with one of the... Uh, that can be really just helpful as a visualization to see yeah. where it fits in as a, like, yeah, Im- Im- imagery-wise. No, I, I don't retain that sort of stuff. But it's uh, that's why I that's, that's why I outsourced my brain to <laughs> the internet. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna look. It's uh, there. Okay, so to understand Leviticus, in my opinion, you have to look as we've as has been our practice for the word that is the key word in the portion. So if you look at verse 2, you will find the key word on page 660 without any difficulty. <laughs> it says, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, Adam, ki yakriv mikem korban. Adam, a human being, which is an unusual usage because it usually says ish, which means a person or a man literally, but uh, and for some interesting reason, they begin the book of Leviticus saying, Adam, Adam, right? The human. So something more than just, a, for me, that signals that something more, in the first call of the book, something, something universal is being summoned here, beyond the details of all the rituals that will follow. A human, ki akriv mikem korban, who gives a near offering, who brings near, from among you, a, a bringing near offering, Ladonai, to yod min ha min ha-bakar, u-min ha-tzon, from either the, 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 the cattle, the, the um, sheep, or the, the herd, or the flock. I the, how the word herd is the same letters. Bakar and kerev are the same letters. Um, I noticed that too. What is the same letters heard and what else? The Hebrew for heard is bakar, bet kuf resh, and the Hebrew for near is kuf resh bet. So again, the music of the Hebrew is right in there. Takrivu et korbanchem. A person um, who brings near an uh, a bringing near offering to Yerhevafe from the flock or the from the from the uh, herd or the the flock or well it's three things um, brings near their near offering. Okay, so this korban karovitz four times in that first sentence, repetitive sing song almost, telling me in the way I've learned to study Torah that. This is all about how to get close to God. That's what it's about. 
Now, when you think about the whole Torah as I began, the whole Torah is about how to get close to God. So Leviticus, it's almost as though the book of Exodus has ended. They're close to God. That's how the book ends. And now here comes right in the middle of the book, a whole book about how to stay close to God and how if you get disconnected from God, how to come near again and reconnect. And um, I'm just really excited about that. So if you look at um, verse 3, it continues. Im ola korbano, if your ola, now ola is called a burnt offering. What's the root of that? Going up. Allah, la'alot, to make aliyah. If you're going up offering, if you're going up and coming near offering, <laughs> is from the bakar, and that's the first one they choose. They don't choose behemah, and they don't choose tzon. So why are they going in that order? Because, again, they want you to hear the music of kerev, bakar, bakar, kerev. If you're going up and drawing near is from the bakar, Zachar Tamim, a, a, um, a male without blemish, Yakri Venu, you shall bring near, El Petach Ohel Moed, to the opening of the tent of meeting. Draw near, Yakrivoto, bring it near, Lertsono Lifne Adonai, in your behalf and, and according to your desire into the presence of God. Now, the English won't do that. The English says, if your offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall make your offering a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the eternal. And that's why this is the worst bar mitzvah portion ever. <laughs> the word vayikra also has that. Vayikra is to call. Right. And it has that same sound. And so... Yeah. Oh, that's right. As you're saying, all and Kerev. There's all... the music of the Hebrew. I never realized that. Yeah. Because one of the questions everyone always has about Vayikra is how come it usually says Vayidaber Adonai El Moshe Lemor? And God spoke to Moses saying. That happens hundreds of times yeah. in the Torah. But here it says Vayikra El Moshe, Vayidaber Adonai Elav. And God called to Moses. And there's incredible teachings about this, but I want to go with the musical one just for this moment and say maybe the kar and the kerev and the bakar are all, the, this, was it, this was the way it was recited. Yeah. I just read somewhere on Vayikra that that Vayikra has, a, the calling has an intimacy. It's part of the nuance of the word. So, yes. It also, I mean, it brings in the whole creation because God, yeah. you know, the calling and mm -hmm. creation. God called the day, night, the light, day, and God called. There's an intimacy of naming, yeah. right? It's it's a naming. It's like Moshele. Yeah, right. Yeah, Vaikra. That's like Moshele. Right. When Leah <laughs> names her children, does she call them by those names? Probably. Probably. That's usually what how you name someone. You call them something. That's why in modern Hebrew you say, what's your name? You say, Korimoti, you call me Jonathan, right? Okay, um, so 
that verse three, which again is it's sound. I want to translate it again as I would, in, in, direct translation from the Hebrew. If the going up, and you're going up and drawing near, is from the herd, the bakar, it should be a flawless male that you draw near to the opening of the tent of meeting, draw near your desire before in the presence of Yudhei The language is so intimate in Hebrew. It's, it's, it gives me a whole new flavor for this is, remember, this is how the whole book is starting. It's going to set the tone. So this is about how to become intimate with God once again. Yes? This is amazing because it's total contrast to the golden calf. Total contrast to the golden calf. Because that way you can't be intimate with it. And this way is asking us to really be engaged with what you're doing. Nicely put. Nicely put. The golden calf... The reason, maybe that's one of the reasons, spiritually, that you're not supposed to make a molten image of, or a statue of God. How can you get near that? It becomes reified. That means it becomes uh, solid in your imagination. And so, so the, the golden calf is a rejection of the intimacy that God is yearning for with humanity. Because also, it's like they slept with their animals. Mm -hmm. There's a something, there's an intimacy of, I mean, if you've ever had a pet you, and they sleep with you, there's an intimacy there. Well, so, this, yes, yes. So it's a, I don't know why they... Nice, yeah. nice. I, Gail? I was also struck, it's, it's being done, God calls... At the tent of meeting, at the tent of assembly. The tent of, well, getting yeah. Getting together. Moed is getting together. A moed is that's, that's a place the place there. and time for getting together. So that's where he calls, that's where the door That's right. That's, the comfort, yeah. that's why the tent of meeting is such a nice translation for it. Uh, you know, let's, let's meet down at the tent of meeting. Yeah, let's get. I mean, it's not out, outside. It's not even in the open. It's. At inward, inward, yeah. inward. It's all about closeness. It's all about closeness. So it's moed and it's witnessing then as well. That's right. Moed, it, it, moed is a place of witnessing in that you're meeting, as, meeting witness. as witness. It's an intentional, very intentional word. Um, uh, the word ed means witness. When the Ten Commandments says, lo t'yelecha ed shaker, do not be a false witness. It's a very deep commandment. It's very deep. Because to witness God or to witness someone is to be really intimate with them, right? It's to engage with them. Any therapist here knows what it means to be in witness, a state of witness for your, for your person. Um, and what you're doing is you're eliciting them, you're eliciting their deep insides with your witnessing. So all of that, is, is so, so, this is a love story. The Torah is a love story. The creator of the universe wants and needs us so that we can be in witness with each other. Um, and it's an intimate, deep within 
place of being together. And we humans continually in the Torah either run away, get too frightened, or get distracted by our passions. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting that the seat of passions is also our innermost place. Right? There's no, you can't like, this isn't about, if it's your innermost place, this is not about transcending yourself. It's about being with yourself in the most profound way. I'm into it. I like this. Um, but then, from there, you're into it, but then it says before rising up. And there's an ascent. An ascent. That's right. It's both an internal and an ascent, which are the two directions that we generally assign the spiritual journey to. For whatever reason, that's the, that, those are the metaphorical directions that we assign the spiritual journey to. It's either a journey within, deep within, or an ascent to the mountaintop. So therefore, the mountaintop of Mount Sinai, as we've discussed, and the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies are the same place. It, they're, they're, the directionality, it's more about the meeting that happens. Either when you get, you could say, when you go to the highest place, you get out of yourself. But maybe we're talking about the ego there. Because uh, also when you go to your most innermost place, you also forget yourself if you're engaged deeply in creative process or in contemplation. So in either case, it's some kind of journey away from our surface uh, self, our ego self, our constructed self, towards uh, something that dwells above it, but also deep, deep within it. Um, I remember hearing a nice sermon about, in one of the Psalms, I think David was talking about his innermost regions. That's right. I, I looked up those Psalms be oh, okay. because the sacrifices, the, the ne drawing nears offerings, um, are all about reconnecting, reunion with God from distance. So David's Psalms of Repentance use the same words. In, there's two of the most famous ones. In Psalm 51, he's, it's right after, this is the Psalm assigned to David after he recognized that he had sinned with Bathsheba. And it's an incredible, it's, you know, have mercy on me, God. Um, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. Purify me of my sin, for I recognize my transgressions and I am ever conscious of my sin. And then it says, um, it's on the next page. Um, Purge me with hyssop till I am pure. And the reason I'm saying that is that that's what happens to the sacrificial animals. Hyssop is used. So everything that, Adam, everything that David describes in this psalm is what happens to the sacrificial animals. Mm. Would you just read what that... Sure, let me read the whole thing. Think about uh, the, the sacrifices. Against you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are just in your sentence and right in your judgment. Indeed, I was born with iniquity in sin and my mother, even when my mother conceived me. Indeed, you desire truth about that which is hidden. Teach me wisdom about the secret things. Satum, that which is closed within. Purge me with hyssop till I am pure. Wash me till I am whiter than snow. 
Let me hear tidings of joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed exult. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. And this is the line. Lev tahor berali Elohim. Beruach nachon chadesh bekir bi. Fashion a pure heart for me, O God, and create with deep within me a steadfast spirit. So that's the word kirbi uh, in this psalm. Um, and then in Psalm 139, which is the other great one that, he, uh, that, that deals with repentance, it says, O Lord, you have examined me and know me. When I sit down or stand up, you know it. You discern my thoughts from afar. You observe my walking and reclining and are familiar with all my ways. There is not a tongue, word on my tongue but that you, O Lord, know it well. You hedge me before and behind. You lay your hand upon me. And then it says, It is beyond my knowledge. It is a mystery. I cannot fathom it. Where can I escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend to Sha'ol, you are there. If I take wing with the dawn to come to rest on the western horizon, even there your hand will be guiding me. Your right hand will be holding me fast. And then it says, um, uh, because you formed me, Ki ata kanita chilyotai. Chilyot klayot is the word for, the synonym for innards in Hebrew. We'll see it here over and over again. For you formed my inmost self, and uh, you fashioned me in my mother's womb. And our translator says, it was you who created my conscience, which is a good translation because the klayot were considered to be that seat, one of the organs that were the seat of that. So those are the psalms. They're beautiful, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, yes, Miriam. When you say hisop, that every place we went, I mean to... Hisop's all over Israel. It really is. Everywhere we went, I kept hearing that this was the main word uh, when it kept coming up. And it's a medic if you threw it into a tea, or mm-hmm. what's the deal? Mm-hmm. Oh, we've learned a little about hisop. Um, now he's curious. It has, it has properties. Um, it's, but do you remember anything about hyssop, Karen? I think it's warming. Is it? I don't remember, but it's used in all the rituals, and it's very fragrant, and it's one of the main ingredients. It's one of the ingredients in zatar, oh, which yeah, is the right. Right. which yeah, is yeah, the yeah. favorite spice oh, of right. the favorite herb combination. Herb combination. Right. Um, so, um, okay. So we've heard the word karov, karov, bakar, kirbi, karov, and this is all about the human being. And so what I want to do, and ola, which is going up, um, and so take a look. Let me just see. Let's go on with this passage. The bull, verse 5, the bull shall be slaughtered before Yudhevave, or in the presence of Yudhevave, and Aaron's sons, the Kohanim, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all sides of the altar, which is at the entrance, opening of the tent of meeting. And the burnt offering shall be flayed and cut up into sections. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar 
and lay out wood upon the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall lay out the sections with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. And its entrails and legs shall be washed with water, and the priest shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a rising up offering to God, an offering of pleasing odor to Yudhei And that formula gets repeated over and over and over again. But what I wanted to point out in there is that verse 9, it's entrails. Look at the word for entrails in Hebrew, in verse, the beginning of verse 9. Oh, we're on page 60661. Kirbo. Okay? Kirbo is entrails. So here we have the same word for the drawing near offering, korban, and the same word for entrails. So I find that interesting. To me, it signifies that the entrails are very important to this ritual. The entrails, according to Mary Douglas, are covered with suet. Suet is the fat that covers the abdominal organs. Yes, Emily. So, um, I took a class on DMT by James Joyce when I was in college, and it centers around two characters. One, Leopold Bloom, is an Irish Jew who is introduced as a character who enjoys eating sort of strange pickled entrails and innards and oh um, and he, he he's friends with another character Stephen Douglas a, um, a scholar and a, a Christian and who He was much more um, articulate and um, academic um, than Bloom. Bloom is a bit of a fool. He, you know, he's um, he's he, he's very he's very humane. He he, um, he the book centers around his his walks through Dublin. Um, Philosophizing about relationships. Um, Stephen is a reputable scholar who um, who's somewhat who's more respected in the community, but um, also with arrogance. Um, and, and Bloom is. More emotional. Anyway, at the end of the the book is is really um, about the the interchanges between these characters and their experiences. At the end of the book, um, Stephen is is wandering lost through Dublin, and Bloom prepares him breakfast. Um, he. 
Mm-hmm. Someone's able to ground um, Daedalus. Oops. Um, basically, uh, Daedalus is he. Um, he has more abstract. Um, concept of what it is to to worship something and um, anyway I, I was just thinking about this I've been taking up a lot of time that's okay but an embodied would would that word make sense here is Leo Bloom more embodied than Daedalus because something about these offerings are very are it's it's like it's the body is that connected to what you were saying or not? Yeah, uh, that's, that was my point. Um, Good, then I got it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And he eats these innards. These. <laughs> I wish someone had made me take a course on, on uh, James <laughs> Joyce at some point, because I never picked it up. I bet you read it. You know, when I read it, I was uh, tutoring uh, Chloe Hanna, and her bat mitzvah was on Bloomsday. And I found the first edition of Ulysses. And so in the couple of weeks between then and her bat mitzvah, that's when I read it. It wow. is a fascinating, amazing story. I, I agree with you. Yeah, and definitely. <laughs> 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 um, sorry. <laughs> keep going, keep yeah, going. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's also a, it's based on the Odyssey. Um, it's, a, it's a journey of, uh, yeah. Right, it's a mythic journey. But But there's something about the character that is closer to the guts of things, as Bloom is, that probably Stephen feels a little bit like... Well, again, this... not. I mean, if I was in in the class, I'd say, so Bloom and Daedalus, you know, they're two very different (laughs) kinds of words in English. Anyhow, thank you. Um... Well, and also Daedalus, of course, is flying too close to the sun. No, it's Icarus. Who's Daedalus? The the father. The builder. The builder. He creates the maze. He creates the maze for for Theseus and the Minotaur. Oh, boy, he makes mazes. Well, that's why that's his name. Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Cool. And that's sort of like the labyrinthine mind of having to be the scholar. The labyrinthine mind of the scholar. Uh Uh-huh. Neat. Great. I love the fact that Vayikra... I mean, to me, this portion just... It brings in all of this associative stuff. I because it has to be. It's so associative. And the reason it dies in our hands today is because we're not used to thinking this way. Yeah. Also, I was thinking about what you said about the soul before, because I'm thinking in the Kabbalistic understanding, which is later, but the lowest level is the part of us that is the most physically, the most in the body, most connected mm-hmm. to the body. And that's, I think, what the entrails... That's where I keep, I keep going there. Go there. We put them and we offer them. The word is repeated a zillion nefesh. times. It's that part of us that is nefesh. Remember, the word for entrails is kerev. Same word. Yeah, I'm hearing it. Same word as to draw near is your innermost mm-hmm. uh, organs. But it's the most innermost as, as being human. Right. In our yeah. most human aspects. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's how I would put That's it. what I'm trying to get after here. Yeah. And we know that... Listen to David. Animal sacrifices, drawing near offerings, were the substitute for offering yourself. That's what it was. The substitute for, it's like, think of Nadav and Avihu 
bringing, getting so close to the altar that in, without heed, heedlessly, that they get completely consumed in their loss of self, in their uh, ecstatic union. And uh, um, you want to be alive here. This is where the action is. This is, where we get, this is where we get separated so that we can draw near again. This is where it happens. The, in the Jewish tradition, there are many statements about how humans are better than the angels. And lots of rabbinic stuff about this. And the angels hate the humans. Because the, the angels in Jewish angelology have no free will. They have no free will. All angels live in bliss. All they can do is sing God's praises. That's all they can do. So they don't get the experience of losing in order to find again, which is that that's what makes stories, right? That's what, that's, and, life, and that's what makes us go. I'll say a little more about that because... <clears throat> this is actually, I'm pretty sure this is the true explanation. In the Amidah, when we're praying, we're supposed to take three steps forward, put our feet together, and bow, and not move our feet. They have to be together. They can't, they're not supposed to be like this. They have to be like this. And not until we finish the Amidah are we, do we take three steps back and resume our human stance. What's that about? It's really crazy. In rabbinic imagination, angels have only one leg. They're monopods. Why? Because they can't, co- they can't walk. They, they don't travel. All they are is, and it's magnificent, is standing there in constant praise. Glory, glory, glory. Right? But humans, when we pray, we're supposed to become like angels and forget everything and be in that space. But because we're human, we walk away again to do our lives. So somehow that's connected to everything we're, we're talking about here. But how does that just fit in with stories where the angels walked up to Abraham, the way angels went up and down Jacob's ladder? How does right. that connect? Um, because it's figurative. Those angels, too, are simply emanations of the divine. They're, Do they have sometimes. See, don't, don't get literal. Don't get literal. They also, don't, they also have one leg or they have two legs. They have wings or they don't. It's like it doesn't matter. Um, maybe in Blake, we have to look. There is in Blake. Yeah. But what's really? interesting, yeah. But, what, but the point is, yeah. we don't know what angels look like, Anne. Oh. The point is that the angels, unlike humans, are only made up of God's emanation. They're not made up of God's emanation mingled with the flesh. And so they never dis- get disconnected from the divine, but they also therefore lack the ability to choose. They can only do God's will. And so the, the rabbis privilege human beings over angels because human beings know what it means like to lose 
and then to find again, and that makes the finding infinitely richer. Yes? Okay, two things. And how come then in Unatani Tochev do they have seizure and trembling? Because I've always seen that as some distance between oh, and the absolute sentinel properties. And then the other thing I just wanted to say is, um, in Balinese Hinduism, this was just a connection for me. In Balinese Hinduism, Hinduism, which is where I've been lucky enough to be in a lot of rituals, including blood rituals, which are really intense. And they feed the entrails to the priests so that the priests still have a connection to the lower aspects of existence and don't go off into some angelic or enlightenment realm, but have to keep working. Wow. Wow. Kishkas. Yeah. <laughs> Kishkas. You know, a kishka is uh, stuffed uh, intestine, right? It's sausages, and Jewish sausages. But, but when I was a kid, and I'd go to bar mitzvahs, would there be these fancy menus, and it would say, stuffed derma. Right. And I just didn't know what that was. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's in your kishkas. So, right. so it's fascinating that your innermost parts is also connected to drawing near to God at the place where we meet in the tent of meeting. Yeah. But, but why the, do you think the angels, I mean, how come the angels can still be subject to that? Because angelology isn't consistent. It's not a science. No, 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 no. No, we make a big mistake when we think we can map the seven heavens. We make a giant mistake because it's all beyond three dimensions. And so... But anyway, anyway, um, my, my point, Marka, is that Ephraim of Regensburg, when he wrote that, wanted his angels to quake in dread. That's my opinion. Uh, I don't think he was consulting the angel uh, rule book. Uh, I think he was writing his poem. Right. Uh, but I don't really know. It just seems such a human thing to have seizure and tremble. Yes, you know? yes, yes. <laughs> that, that was always a big yes, surprise yes, for me. Yes, <laughs> So, But that's because, and again, listen everybody, the angels in the Bible are very different than the angels of the Hellenistic period, are very different than the angels of the Zohar. Angels will take whatever shape you want to give them. <laughs> so... Again, we really walk down a stupid, pardon me, a unproductive path by trying to say, but that's not what angels are. That's just like, don't even go there. We don't know. Here in this case, the rabbinic take on angels is, a, is an ethical and teaching one. It's not a literal one. The ethical teaching one is that it's good to be human because you have free will, and you know what it is to lose, and you know what it is to yearn, and you know what it is to strive, and you know what it is to feel reunion. And that's, it's good to be a person. And that's, so they compare it to angels who, in their opinion, don't get to have that human experience, which also is accompanied by great suffering and sorrow. But it, for the rabbis, they're saying, no, no, this is all worth it. Yeah, I know. It's interesting, isn't it? That's, angels, angels cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Well, my three Mormon roommates... Your three Mormon roommates. This sounds like the start of a good story. <laughs> That's a good one. Said that uh, angel, uh, before children are born, the angels, and that it's important to have as many children as you can so that the angels can be born. Incarnated. Yeah, incarnated. So they can come into the... That's why, that's lovely. 
<laughs> no, that is. That's lovely. Yeah, right. And then there's the story about the angel that uh, hovers over every single growing thing, has its own angel, yeah. t- saying to it, grow, grow. Right? right? Is, that's not a true story. That's like another beautiful metaphor for the life force. Right? And then there's the story about the angel that sits in the womb with the, the fetus and teaches it all the secrets of the universe. Right. And that the fetus, before it's born, the hidden light is revealed to it and it can see from one end of the universe to the other and know all secrets. And then right before the baby's born, the angel strikes them right here, causing this dip in their lip, and that causes them to forget. And then they're born and we spend the, and we spend the rest of our life remembering what we know deep down we already knew. Right? Seeking the lost... The, uh, Robinson Jeffers says the, the great forgotten language it's a great poem of his that I got attached to a long time ago the forgotten door the, it's just these beautiful metaphors he uses for this I know it's there somewhere mm-hmm. so we tell stories but you have to go to another teacher to get serious about, who, <laughs> about what angels really are <laughs> Because I, I believe in spiritual well, forces. Let's go to the Mormon church. Right. Uh, I, yeah. I, 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 personally, I personally believe in disembodied spiritual forces. I don't know what they are. <laughs> How would I know? I only can experience them. I don't know what they are. You understand what I mean? So I give them names. But I don't know what they are. I'll find out one day, by and by. Maybe. I hope so. Okay, um, so now um, let's turn ahead uh, uh, to. Um, it's it's great, isn't it? Um, if you like this sort of stuff, uh, turn ahead to page six sixty five. Sure, turned it around for me in a whole different interest. Thank you. What is the verse? Um, uh, let's just read from verse twelve to the end of the portion because we'll run out of time so because chapter chapter 3 verse 12 you good? Yeah. yeah okay and you'll hear the language that gets repeated over and over again v'im ez korbano and if his drawing near is a goat he draws it near into the presence of the eternal and lays a hand upon its head. This is called an offering of well-being, a gratitude offering. And it shall be slaughtered in the presence of the tent of meeting and Aaron's son shall dash its blood against all sides of the altar. Then present as your offering from it the creve mimeno korbano and then draw near from it as your, as your drawing near offering um, uh, as an offering of uh, drawing near a fire to God, et ha-chelev. Now, chelev is the word for fat. Okay, so if you know Eretz Zavat Chalav Udvash, a land flowing with milk and honey, is actually a land flowing with fat. In other words, richness, richness, that kind of fat. And devash, as it happens, is actually date honey, because they didn't domesticate bees 
But I don't know, if you've been to Israel, you can buy date honey there. Yes, Silan. So anyway, so chalav and chalev are the same word. Uh, a land flowing with richness and sweetness is what it means. Milk and honey says that, right? Richness and sweetness. It has a heart in there as well. Chalev, has heart in it. Beautiful. And this word chalev, I take my word for it, has been repeated over and over and over. That word along with carrot. Karov gets repeated over and over in this. Um, but which fat? The fat that covers hakerev, hachelev, hamechase covers et hakerev, the innards. The so this fat, and apparently, according to Mary Douglas, I've never been to a slaughterhouse. When you slaughter a big animal like this, there is a white coat of suet. You know about this, Ted, right? So you can fill me in if I'm wrong here. That covers these abdominal organs. In fact, you don't see the organs when you open up the animal. You have to remove this layer in order to see the true inwardness. So Mary Douglas is positing that the body of the animal became a metaphor for the, what, the smoke that is around the rim of Mount Sinai, that no one can see what happens up there, and the incense that gets burned in front of the curtain, in front of the Holy of Holies, that's where the incense altar is, creating smoke that prevents you from seeing into the innermost place. And that by removing this and washing the entrails, they become revealed, this innermost place. So that <clears throat> the, the, the hypothesis, which I find very compelling, is that going into the innermost place in the animal and removing the, the covering that obscures it and washing the entrails before you turn it all into smoke on the altar as a pleasing odor to God, um, is all about a symbolic journey of opening yourself, removing the, the, that barrier between you and your innermost place, cleansing it, and offering it on the altar. Makes sense to me, everybody. Um, so taking off the suet, the word for flaying the animal... Flaying is natach, which means like to, to slit. Oh. So this is to remove the chelev. Uh, um, it says, uh, I, I don't know where it says that, but they don't use the word flay. They use the word... It did in the last sardine. Yes, but that was referring to when you open the animal. Right, okay. Not to removing the fat. You flay the animal, which means natach is the same word as an op as an operation by a surgeon in Hebrew. You cut it. Open his skin. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And then you uncover the organs by removing this white layer of suet called chelev. What's well, the relationship? That it's for food, sorry. That they, 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 they uh, is an offering as food, which in... Which verse? Uh, 16. The priest shall turn these into smoke on the altar as food. Oh, lechem isha 
l'reach nichoach, a a food a, a burnt offering of food with a good smell to God. So actually, not the, food for the people. No, the people eat other parts. Yes, but they don't eat this fat. Right. I I love that you know because I do eat the other parts, and a lot of these uh, verses end with that lovely aroma of. A lovely aroma of barbecue, I know. I know, it was like, a good, it smelled good. It, the, I think, you know, and it's in the middle of the camp, and they're smelling this barbecue. Boy, God must be happy today, yeah. I'm sure there was a very, very basic, a very basic uh, thing going on there. So, the fat that covers the entrails, and kol hachalav, chalev, all the fat, on the kerev. It's repeated twice. So, et ha-chelev ha-mechaseh et ha-kerev vet kol ha-chelev asher al ha-kerev. The fat that covers the entrails and the fat, the suet that um, covers the entrails. I mean, I'm not sure what that means because I, I think anatomy made help there. Um, and then it says, vet shtei ha-klayot and the two kidneys that's when um, David says in that psalm, you know my clayot, you know my kidneys. And our translator said conscience. So what did, I'm not sure what the kidneys represented, but the translator says the seed of conscience. And the fat that is upon them. Uh, on the loins, loins, we must be talking about genitals. And hayoteret, the protuberance of the liver. On the liver. On the liver. The liver apparently, I was reading about this, has a part that protrudes. And this is, was used in ancient times for divination and other things. But I don't know, I don't know enough to know what it means. Al hakaved, al hakayot yesirena. You shall remove it from all of these organs. And then the priest shall turn these into smoke on the altar as an offering by fire, food of pleasing odor for the eternal. And then, I just wanted to get to this line because I never noticed it before. Listen to this. Verse 17. Kol, oh, the end of 16. Kol chelev ladonai. All fat is the eternal's. Now that makes for some interesting <laughs> contemporary... Uh, God loves your fat, that's good. Is but that what it is in Hebrew? Kol chelev ladonai. All fat, all of this, all of this, but we're referring, we're referring to the inner covering of the organs, right? Is yudhevaves. It is a law for all generations in all your settlements. And this is the line. Kol chelev v'chol dam lo tochelu. You must not eat any fat or any blood. Wow. Now, what's interesting about that to me is that we know from Genesis that we're not supposed to eat any blood. It's one of the central principles of Torah because blood belongs to God. And we've come to understand what that means is that blood represents the life force. And the life force is given to us by God. It's dam. Dam is the Hebrew word. Adom means red, R-E-D. Adama means earth. Adam means human. 
So the blood that flows through our veins, the red blood, comes from the earth that God formed us out of. And you must return the blood to the earth. You must not drink it. It's not yours to drink. That's repeated over and over. And here I come across this verse that says you also can't eat the suet that surrounds the organs. They both belong to God. What do you think, Bob? I've lost what verse you're... Oh, I'm sorry. Now I just turned the page, and I'm on the top of verse six, uh, page 666. Uh-oh. When we eat trace. But when you kosher meat, you, it, you, you have to drain it of the blood, right? That's right. Still, there's still blood in the muscles. Not in kosher meat. It's all been salted out. Really? Really. That's why it really. That's why it tastes different. No blood. There's fat. There's grease. But that's not, this grease no, this is not. this is talking about other. This is talking about the, when you, the, the suet. It's a hard layer. A hard layer of of white fat that surrounds our... It's not our, the marbling in the muscle. It's not the marbling in the muscle. That's not what it's talking about. Right. And kosher meat, the reason it's salty is because after they drain the blood, they salt the meat. I hope you don't. I didn't know that. So, but there, it, there's nothing in kashrut that refers to fat, or is there? No. I am, that's why this was a surprise to me. Um... And I have to look into it further because I just discovered this while I was preparing for the class. Well, it just certainly feels like the psychological reading is not to be vampiric in any way, which has a lot of applications. But the fat is protect. I mean, even in humans, it's protective, and it's protective primarily of these lower organs, right. which are related to, as Gail was saying, they, I mean, in my experience, they tend historically, like the kidneys are related to jealousy, I believe. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're related to intense pure negative emotion mm -hmm. so it seems like to you know get the sewer out of the way and to give that to god is to actually uncover mm -hmm. what negative emotion is still yeah. lingering so that a light can actually reach it the way to get close to god is not just to bring the self that you think is ex <laughs> pure and acceptable but to bring your most getting back to where gail started yeah. to bring your most basic passions the stuff that drives you and give it to God. Your kidneys. Your kidneys. <laughs> uh, your kidney stones. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Thanks. I just looked up kidneys, actually. Yeah. Um, oh, good. <laughs> uh, Bob? Oh, I'm sorry. Then Gail. I'm thinking what a challenge it is for the rabbis to prepare a 13 year old for a bar mitzvah this time. With this, yeah, we have one this have Saturday. Over and over and over again. Oh my God. All the families challenge. want the parties in the spring. Yeah, they want to have their parties in the spring. That's when we're reading Leviticus. <laughs> our, our tutors know this phenomenon well. You have some kids who get it. It's beautiful. I have to there, teach about leprosy again? Yeah. There are some kids who have, are symbolic thinkers by nature. They'll do the metaphor. And get excited about this. Most kids... Wow. Yeah. So I just talk about bringing your best, you know, and the fact that there's a whole other take on this, which is that um, when the temple was destroyed, 
the rabbis did not, did not continue with sacrifices. They replaced it with prayer. Uh, so they, they replaced this with the talking cure. Right? And, and so that's something to talk about, the relationship about revealing yourself verbally. And, and so we work on that because that is the Jewish answer. The Jewish answer is we stopped doing this 2,000 years ago and the rabbis explicitly and consciously said, in the absence of sacrifices, now we must pray in order to draw near to God. So again, for the kid that can think about it, that's a place to go. Gail, and then Karen. Um, for me, so much of Leviticus is about mindfulness. It's about our intention to stay close to God by paying attention to how we behave toward other people as well as toward God. And the taking away of the fat from this, this part of oneself is not only exposing it to God, but you becoming, me becoming aware of where my, where my reservations are, where my resistances are, where I unintentionally sort of did something wrong because I didn't want to pay attention to what I actually was feeling. <clears throat> and, and that's, uh, Jonathan Sachs just wrote a great um, uh, interpretation of, of Bayikra where he talks about the, 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 the sacrifices that are for unintentional sin. There's no sacrifices for intentional sin. That you just can't, you're stuck. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, well, what's meant by, what do we mean by unintentional sin? And he was talking about it in the end. It's, it's the stuff we do because we don't want to notice or we haven't noticed what we, what we might really want to do and we do it sort of sneakily. You know, you know right. right. And, so um, it's about so awareness. It's about awareness, right. exactly. So taking the fat off, to me, is, is right. symbolic of offering that up you know, let God take it and leave me aware. So, thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. Trimming the fat and getting to the... Getting to the heart of the matter. Yeah, the marrow, the heart of the matter. circumcising the heart. It's the same That's right. Take the sheath yeah. off take your heart, sheath. it says. Right. Karen, what do you want to You know, seeing the analogous between circumcision and yeah. a lot of mm -hmm. similar language. Mm -hmm. the other thing I was going to ask, so the people who are interested in building a third temple... Yeah. Are they interested in getting back to animal sacrifice? Absolutely, 100%. They're already breeding red heifers. They, for them, this is all literal. And I have, a, I have a feeling most of them don't have this level of reading of it, even though it would make their desire even stronger. Uh, uh, really, seriously, because it's so strong. It, imagine, this was not a barbecue. This was the Levites who accompany you on your journey to become close to God again, reunion, through this symbolic set of steps which reveal your inmost parts in the substitute you have here as the animal and then offer it up to God. It's everything. And it's deeply meaningful and, and profound. Um, uh, that's how I read this. After many, many years, that's my understanding of it. And I wanted to say a little more because David said, remember, uh, in this psalm, um, uh, you formed my kidneys, my inmost parts. You know my thoughts. So David is revealed, exposed to God. The covering isn't there. And then 
And then David says, um, O Lord, open my lips and let my mouth declare your praise. You do not want me to bring sacrifices. You do not desire burnt offerings. True sacrifice to God is a contrite spirit. God, you will not despise a contrite and broken heart. Yes. David, David, in the Psalms. In other words, we have, that's, called, that's Psalm 51. You might want to read it, yeah. Psalm 51. But my point is that, and again, I didn't want to take the lesson in this direction because I've taught it many times. There's a constant critique of animal sacrifice in the Torah. Yes, I see. And um, uh, they were very, they apparently, the prophets, were very aware of the fact that people didn't understand the purpose of this ritual and thought that if I bring my animal, I'm golden. And that's why Jesus, who is in the prophetic tradition, turns over the tables of the money changers in the uh, temple courtyard, not because they're money changers. That was not bad. The, the tradition was, you brought your currency, you gave it to, on the pilgrimage festival, you gave your currency to the money changer who exchanged it for your half shekel, which you needed to, in order to participate in the ritual, but it had turned into a circus, right? It's not about that, Jesus was saying. But that doesn't make Jesus a revolutionary against Judaism, and this is what Christians don't understand by and large, that made Jesus an inheritor of the Jewish prophetic tradition, which talks about this all the time. <coughs> okay, so Gail and then Miriam. And we're going over a few minutes, but then I have one more question I want to ask you. Well, the fact that Leviticus gets to the most incredible requirements of us in terms of our behavior, in terms of really loving everybody. In terms Can of I interrupt in order to explain? It goes with preparing us in this way. It's all one book. The center of Leviticus is the Parsha that says, love your neighbor as yourself. We have 16 chapters of this kind of stuff. And then a chapter of the most elevated, amazing ethical instructions and, it's, and then it goes back to this stuff. So, there's a reason for that. At the center, at the heart of Leviticus, is the sort of the secret key of what all this is for. And that's what Gail's saying, but I wanted to articulate yeah, where it was. Yeah. Miriam? Well, I see, okay, that's how I see it, is that God was instructing from going, people needed something to bring them together. And that the golden calf was not going to work. Mm -hmm. But that they needed to sacrifice. There was child sacrifice going on mm -hmm. in lots of the cultures. But it's like, but then it got distorted. Because, it, but it brought two people together. And in studying some of Alan Lomax's work of primitive rituals. Mm -hmm. And like in the, um, uh, some of them, like the monkey dances. It's like what it did, it brought people together so that you work out, you become a community through your right. process. Whereas it's like we say, it was like a therapist. You're, but yet we have divided people. Oh, you go to, you know, it's like the, 
it's like we get divided by it as opposed to it bringing us together. Right, right. In our secular society, our, our priests are psychiatrists and psychotherapists, and we work pretty much in private or small groups. It's true. Group therapy, I'd say, would be an antidote to that. But it still doesn't have the force of ritual. Right, but this doesn't, I mean, what it did was, I mean, everyone in the culture was brought together through this. Right. Yeah. And that's very... In the center of the camp yeah. is the sanctuary. Within the sanctuary is the inner sanctum. That's where you want to, when you feel like you've been exiled from the divine presence, and what causes exile, we'll talk about this more next week, is disruption. You've sinned. If you've sinned, you, have dis you feel disconnected. And so there has to be a ritual of expiation and reconnection. That's what this ritual is for. So it's a physical activity that mirrors our need to both say we're sorry, to purge ourselves of guilt, to make expiation and make amends, and, re and then have a way to draw near again. And that's, so what cuts us off from God, according to traditional religious language, is sin. Sin cuts us off from God. Because sin, psychologically, spiritually, distances us from our innermost truth, the place where God dwells. Um, and so we become distanced from it. And so the purpose of these rituals is give the society a form and a language. What we have, which is powerful, still is Yom Kippur, one day a year, where we're really doing that. We're really letting it go. Um, but uh, this was the daily practice. So my question is, yes, Gail? No, just to add that this is a public offering, physically, where you often generally slaughtered an animal that you had raised, mm -hmm. that you had a connection to, mm -hmm. and making that as part of the physicality of this is, is an incredibly powerful public statement that you're then doing. Does that make Yes, absolutely. As absolutely, and as if you've read this, you've also noticed that if you it says if you do not have the means to sacrifice an uh, an ox or a goat or a sheep, bring two turtle doves, and if you have no means to do that, bring a bowl of grain. So it's not even about, on some level. If it's you, about offering something that, that matters. That's what you've got, what yeah. You got. Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. So I, the question remains for me, which we won't answer today. Um, it, not only does the blood belong to God, something I've understood for a long time, but the fat that surrounds your innermost organs belongs to God too. And I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about that because that's such a striking line in this portion that I've never really considered before. But clearly... The two key words over and over are this word chelev and the word kerev. Kerev is your innermost place. Chelev is the white, opaque stuff that covers it. And you have to remove that, and that belongs to God. So does the foreskin belong to God? I guess that's my question. Uh, like never gets talked about that way. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Oh.